Okay, so we've been talking about uh, dukkha and soul making and uh, that whole nexus uh, between the two, how they bear on each other, and that uh, draws in, of course, the uh, structure of the Four Noble Truths and our interpretation and conception of the Four Noble Truths and the relationship with soul making because the Four Noble Truths deal essentially with Dukkha. It's uh, arising, it's, it's causes, it's release, etc. Um, and we began this talk many parts ago now. We began it uh, looking at and drawing attention to the ways sometimes it's possible for imaginal practices or soul-making practices if they're kind of uh, related to in the wrong way, or if if we don't quite have the right pieces in place, it's possible that actually they give rise to dukkha. And then we moved on to uh, look again at some of the ways and some of the aspects of how um, imaginal perception, sensing the soul, can actually uh, release dukkha, relieve relieve suffering. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, if we uh, stay with that piece a little longer, uh, the way um, soul-making practices relieve dukkha, um, we've talked a lot about individual instances and what's going on there and how that works. Um, we could also make a kind of, uh, if you like, an observation at a larger scale um, and it seems to me, so far, uh, and it seems to me that it's much less likely for um, the, the inner critic to arise or the kind of suffering of ego measurement to arise um, in the context of or in relation to um, uh, soul-making practices and that whole soul-making path um, or imaginal practice, etc. It's much less likely for that kind of suffering, <coughs> ego measurement, inner critic, etc., to arise there in that context or with respect to that kind of um, conception of a path or set of practices than it is for it to arise in relationship to, say, uh, emptiness practices or the movement and the quest, the search for uh, the unfabricated, fabricating this and the opening into the unfabricated, or jhana practice, the exploration of uh, the eight jhanas that the Buddha referred to, or um, the whole kind of search for stream entry, uh, or, or other stages of awakening. Uh, so this is just an observation, and uh, it makes a lot of sense to me why that might be so, um, because at least the way we have been presenting it is uh, this soul-making business is without any final goal. So unlike a jhana, uh, or the unfabricated, or stream entry, or whatever, there's no kind of... Um, uh, stages of progress or a final kind of goal mapped out. And we'll return to this in, in the next talk, hopefully, but uh, 
I would actually rather conceive the path more open-ended that way. So there aren't these kind of um, gradations of uh, progress, stages of progress, by which one by which one measures one's progress, nor some final goal that one can say, I've arrived at, I haven't arrived, my friends arrived, but I haven't, or whatever it is. Um, and so in the absence of that kind of ladder of uh, measurement, uh, the, the 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 ego structures around measurement and the inner critic have have no scaffolding for which to kind of fabricate themselves on which to fabricate themselves and so that whole pain that arises uh, and so um, so difficult for so many people in our culture um, today uh, the whole pain of that inner critic and self measurement and uh, comparison, etc., it really doesn't uh, arise so much. It seems really not to arise so much in, in the soul-making movement and soul-making practices. As I said, this is something we'll return to. But again, at a kind of larger level, I want to dwell a little bit just uh, today on, on a kind of larger level, talking about paradigms and conceptual frameworks um, with respect to dukkha and how we conceive of uh, dukkha and, and causality uh, of dukkha, etc. So let me share something with you that I, uh, uh, something from an interview uh, some time ago with a student who asked for an interview around uh, to talk about soul making, imaginal practice, and that kind of thing. And I have a permission to sh- to share this, uh, as usual. Um, <clears throat> so uh, quite quite a lot came up, and she was telling me as part of the interview something about experiences she'd had um, in relation to eros and image, etc. in in the past. Uh, and all, right from her childhood through her adulthood, etc., as part of the interview. And she shared that she came from a childhood where uh, th- her parents uh, quarrelled quite a lot, and that wasn't something she liked at all. She really uh, wished that they hadn't quarrelled so much and found it difficult and unpleasant. And she also shared that um, perhaps when she was maybe around eight, that she used to go to bed in bed, awake in bed, would have these fantasies of or images of um, it was a little vague, but some something like some uh, men uh, taking her or dragging her down into some kind of mine or a coal mine or something, and then doing sexual things with her or to her. I don't think she used the word abuse, but um, we were exploring this a little bit, and I asked her um, what that felt like, or what what its effect was, and uh, what exactly they did, and she couldn't remember what the effect was, or what her feeling about it was at the time. Okay, so let's just slow down here. Um, I, I don't want to go, you know, to ride roughshod over this. I know that, that uh, just just hearing that kind of image, is, just as an image, can, can have quite an impact. Um, 
there's been a lot of news recently about sexual abuse and, and uh, actually the exposure of that in, in Hollywood and the film industry and, and elsewhere. Um, so let's just, just take, take, take time here and take care of yourself if, you know, if that does uh, kind of bring up difficult, difficult stuff for you. Um, what, what I want to focus on here is something about as images and conceptual framework. So uh, when in this is an instance of an image, in an instance of actual abuse, you know, um, it's really important, of course, that that needs to be uh, exposed, it needs to be addressed, it needs to be confronted, it needs to be healed, you know, and that healing actually involves not just the victim but also the perpetrator who can only do such things when when there's some kind of uh, wounding at some level in in the psyche um, so here I'm not dwelling so much on on that but the I want to make more point about images and conceptual frameworks and uh, assumptions around causality um, yeah, so I'm just aware even just sharing that as an image can, can have an impact, so I want to take care around that. And she also shared that um, she grew up, that she was raised as a, as a, a, a practicing Catholic in, in that household with, with a Christian education, etc. And she also had in her youth um, uh, fantasies of what she called sexual union with God. And again, she was very. Uh, it, they weren't very specific fantasies, uh, but they they were definitely there. Um, as she grew up and still in the the Catholic faith, and she she was she shared several things, which just showed how um, this wasn't. Uh, she is not. She is not now, and she kind of n never really seemed to be a kind of a weak character, easily dominated in life, uh, and nor nor dominating either. And she had this Catholic upbringing, and about um, ten years old, um, she had a Catholic teacher, a woman Catholic teacher, um, who she loved. She she really loved this teacher. And one day they were waiting to go into confession and, and waiting with the teacher uh, for her, for her turn for the confession. And the teacher was wearing furs, was wearing a fur coat or a fur scarf or something. And the student um, challenged her. Said, "Why are you wearing? Why are you wearing dead animals? Um, why are you wearing furs?" And the, the the Catholic teacher actually was a bit sort of stunned that this question came up, and actually got up and went to consult her colleagues, her fellow teachers. Came back after a few minutes and responded to. Uh, this student, um, God told us to subjugate other animals. And this was the answer that was given to this student. And at that point, right there and then, she just lost interest in, in Catholicism. Uh, so there's, there's a spirit there that's willing to, to question authority, make her own decisions. She decides what's right or wrong. And even though she loved this teacher, it's like this is, this is not worthy of, of being pursued. Later, something a little bit similar happened when she was exposed to uh, and, and involved in um, the Zen tradition and started meditating. And similarly, she 
uh, question the, uh, I don't know if it's a Roshi or whatever, the abbot or whatever it was, um, around the uh, use by the, by the Japanese army in, in uh, the Second World War of comfort women. And uh, the, this Roshi or teacher, whoever it was, um, gave her an answer that basically said it was justified and it wasn't wrong, this uh, abuse of, of, of women uh, by Japanese soldiers, in, by the Japanese army in, in, in the Second World War. Um, and again, uh, this student just d- 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 uh, dismissed uh, any authority she had g- given to this teacher and and that whole lineage of teaching, and and she lost interest and moved elsewhere. Eventually found herself in the insight meditation tradition. And there, um, again, there was a pattern, or, or uh, that's too, too hasty to say that, again she found herself um, uh, w- having and feeling and having um, erotic feelings and even sexual erotic images in relation to a female teacher and although that wasn't her you know typical um, and, and isn't her typical um, uh, sexual orientation um, and then that ha- happened again with with another teacher of, of different gender etc so why am, why am I sharing all this? Um, that was part of a much bigger uh, conversation. What I want to dwell on here is, um, as I said, a point about images and about conceptual frameworks and assumptions about causality. So in the course of that interview, um, which was quite a long interview if I remember, um, we talked about the initial image of the, the coal mine and uh, whatever, that sort of sexual image in, in the coal mine being dragged down or taken down. And one of the things um, I uh, brought up, one of the pieces I brought up was that there is a myth, you may know the myth of Persephone. Um, Persephone was a, 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 a young, beautiful goddess, out with her friends on a mountainside, I think in spring, in a beautiful mountainside, um, picking flowers, I think, or, and stooped to pick up a particular, particularly beautiful flower. And as she bent to pick it up, Hades, the god of the underworld, uh, who was either disguise, using the flower as a disguise or something, or the flower changed, I can't remember the details, excuse me, um, but basically Hades snatches her and drags her down into his his realm, his kingdom, the underworld. And then a whole, there's a, it's quite a long and, and complex and interesting myth with her mother Demeter uh, grieving for her and searching for her. Um, in the end, uh, or rather the outcome of it, if I remember rightly, is that Persephone is is uh, taken as, as wife of Hades and becomes queen of the underworld and then divides her time between the upper world, our, our world, this earth of, of the, the human world and the world of nature, and the underworld, the world of spirits and, and souls. Um, and uh, where, she, where she is the, the queen of that underworld. And I think she spends half the year in, in the upper world and half the year in this underworld. 
And now I'm borrowing from James Hillman, who uses that myth, who points to that myth as a kind of archetypal myth uh, or ar- archetypal um, presentation of a kind of emphatic uh, soul mov- moment um, in in the sort of story of human souls, uh, what he calls the initiation into the underworld, into, into the... Uh, underworld of soul. So, uh, in in his view, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with um, sexual violence or sexuality. It's a myth of being pulled down, of innocence, uh, apparent innocence being pulled down into a whole other dimension of things that involves darkness that is actually about soul. The underworld is the realm of souls. And uh, that has to do with death and the kind of... uh, dark and also pathological or seemingly pathological sides of um, of the soul and as, as I pointed out in, in, in an earlier talk in the series uh, for Hillman there, there was a real uh, emphasis, he never let go of this emphasis on the, the, the necessity of the soul, in his view the necessity of the soul to pathologize and to, to create pathologies, to create kind of complexities and ensnarements and entanglements in dukkha and so this this myth of of uh, the uh, Persephone being dragged down into the underworld, um, and then and then that becoming her half uh, or a domain where she spent half her time, where she was actually in her element there. Um, this is a myth of initiation into into the underworld of, of soul and soul making. It's not about evil. It's not necessarily about sex in in this in this uh, in, in Hillman's interpretation, um, but it's about a kind of initiation or movement at some point in one's life um, into a. Uh, uh, in, into the realm of soul, including the pathology, including the darker realm of soul. And so I was sharing something of, of this Hillman's point of view there, and um, we were looking at this together, and I pointed out a possible um, in, you know, uh, interpretation or a conceptual framework to bring to bear, or lens to bring to bear, on, this, on the, these memories that of, of, the, of having these images, uh, that the student was sharing um, is that th- this was um, the the beginning, let's say, of this kind of initiation into a darker kind of soul making. Um, and again, by dark, I don't mean evil. I don't even necessarily mean sexual, although it might be in this case because then there were the, the fantasies of the sexual union with God and the eros towards different teachers, etc. Um, but this initiation into different kinds, different faces of divinity. Because that's what happens to Persephone. She is, uh, her mother is Demeter, the god of the earth, of, 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 of the fields and agriculture and, and the earthiness. And then Hades is the god of the underworld, of shades, of ghosts, of souls. And it's a very different kind of divinity. They are both gods. Hades sometimes is also Dionysus. They're sometimes equated. Um, so the, the myth is kind of an initiation, an opening into suddenly a different realm, a different kind, different faces of divinity, different theophanies, different kinds also of beauty, darker, more complex, more um, uh, sh- shadier, uh, 
involving death, etc., and, and the metaphor of death and, and the, the soul meaning of death. And so could it be, and again, I'm not insisting on this, just opening up a possibility, could it be that what is um, initiated by the arising of these images for this uh, young girl is, is the, the, the seeds or the prompting of a movement that may take decades to mature in the soul. Just as I think in the story of um, Persephone and Hades, it, Hades it, it took her a while, it took that whole process a while um, uh, to, to, to mature and, and reach this kind of um, agreement is not the right word, but uh, n- new point of balance, if you like, with her being queen of the underworld. Could it be that, as I've pointed out, um, this soul-making, one of the ways I feel is very important to see it, or what's most important, um, one of the most important aspects of it is this expanding of the range of the sacred, opening to more kinds of beauty, etc., more um, kinds and places and directions of sacredness and of divinity, etc., and that includes, uh, for some people at least, it includes opening to the dark, and maybe the sexual, and maybe um, the, the, these these kinds of divinity and beauty, and, and the possibility of sensing, uh, the possibility of um, engaging and being worked on those directions, those dimensions, those colors as soul-making, and opening up and discovering and creating beauty and divinity in those directions and in those dimensions, and with those faces and those kinds. So that um, would be a very different kind of theory to, quote, explain the arising of these images than some of the more familiar psychological theories that we're uh, kind of, uh, that we're exposed to. So it's this, really, this business about conceptual frameworks and ideas and assumptions about causality that I want to um, just, just, open up a little bit and bring bring up for our bring into our consideration um, so very often we might hear uh, someone might tell us someone might share something very similar like that image um, uh, from from a young time an image of being dragged or taken underground like that and something sexual happens and, uh, um, and we might very easily uh, infer um, conceptions of causality. Infer means to carry in, fair to carry in. Um, from the Latin, we we sort of carry in um, conceptions. Now, this of course is is related to what I've kept uh, emphasizing over and over again that conce- con- concepts and conceptual frameworks imbue our perception. Our way of, they're involved in any way of looking. Most of the time, we're not conscious of it, uh, of what, what exactly what conceptions are involved. Um, most of the time, we don't have much flexibility um, with what conceptions are involved, but they come in, they are inferred, they are carried in, and they color, shape, and um, de- determine, to a large extent, what then we see. And of course, how we feel about it, how we react, how we respond, etc. So often we hear something like that, an image like that, 
and uh, almost without helping ourselves, the, the mind is bringing in, without being able to help ourselves, the mind brings in conceptions of causality. Um, and causality usually functions um, in terms of from past to present to future. You know, something must have happened before she was eight years old to give rise to these images. Um, so something in the past gave ro- gave rise to those images, and, and there's a um, a causal explanation based on temporal pr- uh, priorness. Versus, as I uh, uh, mentioned the other day, a kind of what we might call a teleological explanation, or what's called a teleological explanation of causality, if you like, where somehow the being, the psyche, and what arises is um, pulled towards and pulled, we could say, or for example, one explanation was it's the image arises um, and it's pulling us towards something that we don't even quite know what it is. It's pulling us towards a certain possibility. Um, it's pulling us towards um, a certain opening or direction or door of soul making. So in that teleological view, the cause, if you like, is in the future. But it's uh, it's not kind of um, a finished fact in the future. It's a very different way of um, conceiving of causality. It's a very different conceptual framework. So, uh, you know, rather than the view, uh, which could be very, very possible and very viable view of causality, this image arose for her when she was eight years old. Something in the past uh, was uh, happened that caused her to have such a um, pathological image, or what many people would interpret as a pathological image, um, and that too is open to uh, to questioning because when I asked her, she actually couldn't remember what the feeling of those images was. Um, it might have been that she enjoyed them, that they were beautiful and rich. It might have been that they were distressing, um, maybe a combination. Um, and, and there's much, much more uh, richer differentiations we, we could make between, uh, you know, what, between possibilities of what, how it actually felt for her, what effect it had, but she couldn't remember. Um, I mean, the question is, could... In a teleological, if we bring that in uh, as an alternative to have something happened uh, that was difficult and it gave rise to this this particular pathological expression, this particular pathological image, um, versus actually in the seeming pathology of this image, the soul is, uh, in a teleological way, um, uh, drawing us towards something. The seeds are in the future. If you like, this is, this is uh, uh, the, the seed re- being planted from the future, uh, opening up um, or, or leading us, inviting us to a door of, in this case, wider, deeper, and different kinds of soul-making. So one of the points I want to make is just how uh, we uh, is, is can we look and question and can we be aware of and then also question um, 
whatever tendencies we have um, of assumption and leaning and uh, narrowing of interpretation um, or concept regarding regarding um, causes in the psyche and for the psyche. Uh, can we acknowledge and be aware of the fact that just how much cultural conditioning uh, there is that kind of creates habits of assumption, uh, tendencies to lean this way, tendencies to narrow uh, the conception and the assumption in certain ways. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot to this, but let's let's slow down. So, um, for the most part, uh, you know, except perhaps in times when we're um, uh, when we're attempting to practice a sort of very close, very narrowly focused. Um, sort of microscopic awareness, mindfulness, or bare attention, uh, so-called. Um, except in those times, which, which, in a funny way, for all the sort of um, uh, clarity that they seem to bring, they also bring their own kind of blindness. You know, when you're just myopically staring at some something so close, you tend to not see the bigger picture. But for the most part, human beings, um, in, in, in our awareness of things, in our mindfulness of things, in our just everyday awareness, except in those times when there's real, really kind of narrow microscopic focus of attention, uh, which produces their own kind of blind, or certain kind of blindness. Um, for the most part, we see and experience things um, with and through a lens that involves, some or other lens that involves some or other concepts of causality. So causality, as I said, is part of the conceptual framework that goes on most often not in, 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 in explicit as thinking, not even that conscious, but then it can become conscious or we elaborate on it or we uh, draw it out as a, as a conclusion or we insist on it. But whether we do that or not, it's kind of woven into our actually, actual experience, our actual ways of looking. Ways of looking tend to, um, for the most part, they include um, some, some or other concepts around the causality. So that, for example, when we hear about the student's image, images from childhood, um, we, we will tend to see them as, as results and or as causes, or at least we see them as, as kind of nodes in a causal network of other events, inner and outer. This is either the result of something uh, in inner or outer, uh, or, or it's the cause of, of something inner or outer. And this is just part of the way we tend to see the world. Um, it's part of the way consciousness works, in fact, uh, for the most part, unless we really try and make it not at times um, with certain ways of looking. So whether those images that, that, um, that, that she shared with me, whether they're considered um, the results as representations of some actual abuse or trauma. So perhaps um, uh, she, she was she was sexually abused. You know, perhaps that's the result, and this is what the images are telling her. It's a replaying, a representation of that. Um, 
<clears throat> or some other kind of, you know, it's a metaphor for some other kind of um, psychic um, abuse or, or trauma or ongoing situation. Um, so they're considered either represent, representations of actual abuse or trauma, or um, they're considered um, the result as her psyche's response to that actual um, abuse or some kind of ongoing traumatic situation in her, in her environment, in her upbringing, in her family. Um, so, for example, a response of avoidance through papancha, through dra- daydreaming. Her parents quarrelled. You know, did you catch that bit? And then did, did does the mind connect that bit? Her parents quarrelled. So this is why. Also, she's it's a difficult environment. So she's um, avoiding that uh, kind of psychic pain um, through daydreaming, through papancha, and through a craving for and a grasping at the pleasant vedana of this um, kind of sexual erotic fantasy. Or the, um, the, the, the the images are considered uh, the result more of, of the soul and the eros seeking um, uh, what's possibly its natural and fundamental movement and inclination to create and discover new and other areas, other realms, aspects, colors and faces for soul making. In other words, the divinity of the dark and, and of the sexually erotic in this case. So very different ideas about the causality going on. But um, h- however we are considering it, uh, we are usually seeing and experiencing um, th- that, uh, what we hear in this case, these images, as a result of something or other. The mind tends to kind of put it in a causal network. And likewise, we will always kind of tend to um, see it, sense it, interpret it um, as as causal, as kind of causally implicative of something or other. So again, a kind of psychological theories, conceptual frameworks come in and we say, oh, this, this is going to be causal of the perpetuation of that trauma. In other words, if as a little girl she just has those kind of fantasies after this or that trauma and that or that woundedness, um, unless she attends to it and has help attending to it properly and understanding it correctly, understanding why why she's having it as a result of this abuse or whatever, then that trauma is just perpetuated in the psyche and in the nervous system, etc. Unless it's attended to and understood um, quote, correctly. Or, um, from a more sort of narrowly classical Buddhist perspective, um, those kind of indulging in those kind of fantasies would just be reinforcing tendencies of craving, aversion, and the delusive habit of papancha, of daydreaming. Yeah, here, just, I'm, I'm just, um, uh, never mind the cause, this, this, these. These fantasies, these kind of images, you're just building craving for that kind of um, sexual pleasure or that uh, or aversion to what's actually going on in the moment, um, the way things really are. Quote, or uh, it's just the delusive habit of papancha. It's just daydreaming. Imagination is nothing but that. Or again, it's they're causal. They're the first um, movements, the first shoots. Um, from the seed 
um, in the direct in 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 different uh, towards opening different directions of soul making. Perhaps in a in a in a Catholic upbringing, and it's a certain it's certain colours of soul making, certain directions, and perhaps this was the first little um, seeds. Uh, sorry, the first little shoots coming out of the seed, <coughs> seed of um, of a different direction, opening up a different direction. They're quite different in terms of causes and the and the causing. Um, what they what what might be caused by <coughs> excuse me what what might be the causes and what might what of this Im, this kind of image and that kind of um, indulgence and uh, if we use that word and and what that might cause where it might be going if it carries on if it if one practices that if one indulges in that so we're always or almost always um <coughs> Uh, seeing things in terms of causation <clears throat> and in terms of past and future and the connection between um, things or events, past, present and future. And how we are conceiving and perceiving a thing or event in terms of its causation and its effects or the range of possibilities we are considering as its potential effects. Yeah. So what we bring in in terms of those um, uh, cause assumptions and concepts about cause uh, and effect and the range, the range there of possibilities that we even admit into our kind of conceptual framework um, in terms of potential effects, etc. That determines, that's part of how we actually approach that thing or event, what we then do with it and to it how we respond to it, how then the uh, those images and that um, psychic uh, fact, if you like, or fact of the psyche of these images arising and uh, whatever feelings, etc., how that is then steered. So we're participating in its evolution in time through our inferring, our carrying in of different uh, ideas, concepts, around cause and effect and uh, that whole nexus between past and future and present and all that. So because we participate in perception that way, and we participate through the conception, through different kinds of conception, we participate in perception, we then participate in the evolution of, of things in time in this case of images and of souls and of um, perhaps sexuality and eros and all kinds of things. So we actually create and discover the effects of something by how we interpret it conceptually. So that's an example of one level of the, the way that we cannot help participate in perception. And our participation determines what we see, because how we how we conceive of the past in relation to the present, determines what happens in the present, what we perceive in the present, what we emphasize in the present, what we perceive, and then what unfolds in the future, because then it determines um, all kinds of aspects of how we relate to it. So as I said, um, what I'm kind of, I'm, I'm just wanting to open up this whole range of discourse, open up um, 
areas and directions uh, and themes for us to consider, for you to consider. Open up the conceptual framework a little bit. And part of that, is, as I said earlier, is just wanting to draw attention to, and hopefully we can all be aware of just how much uh, we are culturally conditioned in the conceptions that we bring to, uh, to, to meet existence. Every aspect of existence, every aspect from the most um, seemingly simple material aspect of existence to the most um, complex and spiritual, including uh, here the psychological and, and uh, the imagination and uh, all kinds of things. So just to be aware of how conditioned, uh, how culturally conditioned we are. We bring in certain ideas just because we are surrounded by certain ideas or we've been educated in, 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 with certain ideas in either the larger culture or different subcultures. And then we form habits of assumption, habits of leaning, um, tendencies to, and habits to narrow down our uh, range of uh, assumptions and uh, concepts operating and thus what, what we do with things, how we respond to things, uh, what we feel needs doing, how we conceive them, how we feel about them, all of that. So to me this is particularly interesting around around uh, what arises psychologically for people and, and also around um, pathology, uh, in other words suffering and dukkha. And sometimes I'm uh, so I'm re- I'm really saying this and pointing this out for the sake of opening up a plurality. I don't want to replace one conceptual uh, uh, one con- con- conception around causality with another conception around causality. This one's true and that one's not. This is better than that one. I, I I'm really interested. I really hope you can hear this. I want to open up to plurality. Is it possible that we can actually broaden our range of conceptions and actually learn to see things in different ways and actually move between these different ways of seeing things? That That's the point of all this. I don't want to replace one uh, with another uh, in, in that kind of movement. But sometimes what I think Sometimes what concerns me a little bit is just when I sense there's this kind of narrowing going on and, and this quickness to assume and a sort of lock-in to a certain psychological framework that carries with it all kinds of assumptions um, that, that somehow are, are not, uh, have, have, um, don't continue, they've, they've st- we've stopped questioning them. So, you know, um, and, and particularly around causality, so, from this point of view, and in the spirit of wanting to open up to a plurality, um, you know, sometimes I wonder, why is it um, that so often, <clears throat> um, and yeah, among uh, colleagues and, and, um, uh, and, and perhaps in the wider culture, um, and the wider psycho-spiritual movements, etc., why is it that the, the kind of the universal experiences, for example, and, and traumas of physical birth and intrauterine experience, um, or, or even, you know, sometimes I've heard that the the, uh, the, the 
biological fact of, of the sperm struggling to penetrate um, the, the uterine wall or the ovular wall. Um, what, these kinds of um, physical material facts, physical birth, intrauterine existence, and um, e- even, not even the, the embryo or the fetus and it, actually the sperm um, in, in its kind of desperation so just like, I actually felt in my meditation that the, the dukkha of the, the desperation of the firm, of the sperm trying to penetrate the, the wall and I experience that as suffering now and uh, I'm kind of reliving the, the pain of that and that's influencing my life uh, and, and if I can re-experience that in, in, in a certain way and, and relate to it in a certain way I'll be freed of the suffering that's carrying that's being uh, uh, perpetuated in my life right now that's a result of um, that thing in the past and, and sometimes I've I have, no, I have no problem with the possibility of that. Something sometimes where I get a little bit, little bit nervous is just how quickly it can shrink to the emphasis on this past. The past is causal. So why is it that those kinds of things, um, you know, the trauma of birth, physical birth, the intrauterine existence, the the, the the sort of the struggle uh, and desperation of the sperm, uh, etc. Why, why those kinds of things are kind of considered uh, more significant and more causal for what I experience and feel now, in my case, 52 years later, um, or, or someone else decades later. Why is that given more emphasis and regarded as more significant and more causal than, say, my reading uh, about, in, in the news, my reading about an oil spill um, a month ago, two months ago, whenever it was off, off the coast of somewhere thousands of miles away, Ethiopia or wherever. Why is, why is it the, 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 the focus on the individual and the the, the past of the individual, and it's going back and back and emphasizing the past, and that's given kind of ele- narrowed down. That's given more significance than my reading about an oil spill, and 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 how that might cause um, pain in my soul right now. How that might affect the way I am in relation to the world, and 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 the whole patterns that get constructed. Um, if I'm exposed to that kind of thing, if I'm in a world that that exposes me to that and also exposes me to the kind of um, seeming lack of care of these things go on and it seems like it's kind of okay it's not really that big a deal on the scale of humanity's concerns or my awareness of the demise of um, of uh, the, the, the number of birds in Europe Massive demise, uh, even just in the last 10 years, massive. In the last 20 years, you know, uh, just at Guy House, a lot less birdsong, a lot less birdsong. Um, or the demise of, of <coughs> um, forests and Amazon and, and uh, rainforests and or actually all kinds of forest everywhere. Or, or the, you know, overwhelming amount of plastic pollution even today and yesterday was reading 
just this massive, massive investment or uh, cooperation between the Trump administration and uh, large fossil fuel companies, ExxonMobil, etc., in um, uh, agreeing to build this $180 billion investment in new plastic-making uh, factories in the, in the Texas and Louisiana coast. Coast, coastal areas, right when we're in the middle of all this news and alarm of just the ex- quite uh, uh, realizing the extent of massive p- plastic pollution, how how long term pervading that is. Why why is there why are these things sometimes not not brought up for consideration as things that are causative of my of my dukkha right now, and causative, as I said, of my, of my whatever cramping I have in in uh, in relationships and uh, self-expression and whatever, or the pain uh, for some souls when one one looks at the world and moves in the world, and and it seems that one is surrounded everywhere by the by an emphasizing and a prioritizing of um, comfort and convenience and pleasure and security way beyond actual actual material needs everywhere there's this kind of automatic um, uh, juggernaut running on of just prioritizing those those values if we can well we can call them values comfort convenience pleasure security they are values but those values and then seeing, witnessing, moving in a world uh, that uh, for decades has and continues to emphasize those kind of values and what that gives birth to and the concrete material um, things and facts and artifacts that that gives birth to in the world and the pain of a soul maybe can't quite even articulate this is my pain I'm somehow trapped in this kind of Kafkaesque world where this goes on and, and so few people even seem to feel it as a concern. And those, those kind of values, comfort, convenience, pleasure, security, the, 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 the excuse me, lower level values um, are, are emphasized and prioritized and, and invested in um, in this kind of over and over and over and over, kind of almost unquestioning way, it's it can seem to a soul in the world. They're emphasized over and above um, values like beauty and soulfulness and love and truth and exploring what what does that mean? What's that journey into opening up more beauty, creating and discovering more beauty and, and truth and what does that mean and what what are the domains of truth and, and love and the kinds of love and the manifestations and the expressions and the courage to explore all that. So all these these are different kinds of um, if you like, they could be, they could well be regarded just just as equally as potential causes of of suffering, of dukkha, of pathology. For me, right now, for for a soul, right now in this world, just as much as this, um, you know, what happened in my birth, and uh, even how it was with my mom, 
when I was X years old, and certainly then going back even more in the womb and um, and with the sperm, etc. Uh, can we open it up if it needs opening up? Can we open it up? So I, I have I have this question sometimes, and yeah, and sometimes a little a little nervousness around sometimes what appears to me a kind of shrinking and narrowing of of the concepts and all the assumptions and and the, the kind of habits that go there. In those in that in those kinds of ideas that that you know give real prior, priority to you know, what happens in in the physical birth, what happens in the uterus, etc., and the sperm. Um, you know, it's worth pointing out that um, though those kinds of associations and memories are are kind of conjectural, um, and they're usually suggested to uh, or interpreted first by some authority figure, such as a psychotherapist or or a physical therapist of some kind, and and communicated that way, and then kind of interjected um, into the you know client subjects experience and then one begins oh yeah I feel this and um and I'm not I'm not denying the truth but I'm just saying where where does it actually come from? Um, how, how, what's the mechanism? What's again the social mechanism? We talked about how images and soul making can be communicated in a field. Uh, this this can too. You know again one wonders about truth and origin and all that. Um, so uh Whereas, I mean, it might be that the the pain around, uh, let's say, oil spills and environmental degradation and uh, the kind of um, obliviousness or lack of care on top of that kind of environmental degradation and the kind of what that does to a soul, um, uh, oftentimes it's not that anyone needs that pointed out to them by any authority figure. It's a kind of more independently, it seems at least, more independently um, arising um, experience by, by a person rather than there in a room with, with an authority figure who's telling them, you know, it's probably, I mean, that, that can happen too. But in this, in this sometimes this narrowing down um, of the emphasis to, to, to the the material past as as causal, and always bringing that conception in, or leaning that way, narrowing it down that way, um, we can see um, again in that from from a certain perspective, we can see um, the dominance of what I called, I think, in in an uh, earlier retreat, um, the fantasy of origin. Something Nietzsche uh, pointed out. We we're kind of a little bit obsessed with how things start. Um, and uh, the kind of that's that's the uh, yes, this is the origin of this now, and it's in the past. We also see in all this this kind of uh, related to that this this kind of logos, this conception of uh, temporally linear causality. The past causes the present, and the present will serve as past cause to the future. Um, also wrapped up in that kind of narrowing that I've described that I said sometimes makes me a little bit nervous um, is uh, a little bit more obscured in the way it's wrapped up is the whole kind of history of the modern construction of self and as I think I've pointed out on previous retreats you know how we feel ourselves how we think about ourselves and our actual experience of self now in this culture is really quite different than it is and was, uh, that it is in other cultures in the world 
um, at present. And then it was even in in in, in these places that we live in um, now, in the past, in other words, in different cultures. The 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 way we feel ourselves, we would take ourselves for granted. Um, the the whole sense of our own individuality and our own individual trajectory, with all the conceptual con- conception of causality wrapped up in that. That whole kind of understanding, um, uh, it, it has a history. It wasn't always that human beings kind of felt themselves like that, assumed that um, who they were and what a self is and how people feel. So also wrapped up into in this kind of narrowing of the um, conceptual range of regarding causality and pathology is also not just this whole idea of a te- temporal structure of causality and fantasy of origins, but also this whole sense. It's not even an idea. It's a, it's it's become a visceral sense of what the self is as as a normal experience. But again, p- please, I'm 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 saying all this. Um, not really. Not. I don't want to replace. Um, a certain paradigm of um, psychological paradigm with another one, say this one's better than that one, this one's more real than that one, this one's more true, or whatever. I'm, I'm actually more interested in, in the narrowing, and, and, and my hope is that we can open, open up our views and open up the kinds of co- conceptual frameworks that we can bring to bear and entertain. You know, it would be I'm silly and extremely silly for for me to say uh, or, or to try to to point you know to try to make the point that the past doesn't affect the future um, or that you know trauma in one's past or a set of uh, you know difficult uh, conditions um, don't affect um, the, the the future and the growth of, of, of a human being that would be really silly um, so I'm I'm really not denying that I'm not denying. Uh, the importance of of what we need, uh, you know, those kinds of ways of approaching and looking and healing and thinking. But but what I'm really interested in is opening to the plural to a plurality of conceptions, a plurality of conceptual frameworks and um, causal theories and causal thinking. And what happens if we can open up to a plurality and move between uh, the, the the different conceptual frameworks of that of that plurality. What would that give us? What would that offer us? What would that open up for us? So that's that's really my interest, not to um, disregard one and replace it with another at all at all. <clears throat> so each of them becomes uh, a paradigm, a conceptual framework, a sort of lens framework that we can enter into in regard to this or that suffering or this or that experience or whatever and move between these now I think <clears throat> I can't remember whether it's just something I've written about recently or um, or I shared it in a talk so excuse me but I'm not I'm not actually going to elaborate on it but I, I would say that it's quite possible to um, place a uh, our, the concepts, as we're using the concepts of eros and soul making, to um, uh, construct uh, or discover a, a, a kind of psychology, but also developmental psychology, a psychology of human development based on 
eros and soul making being the primary drives. So, you know, when Freud uh, made his kind of psychology, his psychological theory, it was based on a primary drives of the pleasure principle. And the images were their Oedipal fantasies there. You know, so that was the kind of basis of his theory. The whole thing driving his um, theory, if you like, or driving development. I say the whole developmental impetus in a human being was the pleasure principle, seeking out of pleasure, and then how that interacted with the family uh, family situation and the larger um, situation of civilization and its laws and 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 mo- uh, morals. Uh, kind of determined these two forces, if you like, uh, are in in uh, in contact with each other, and oftentimes in opposition to each other. And what ensued determined uh, the the development of the human being. But what was primary there was the pleasure principle, and uh, and, and and wrapped up with that the whole Oedipal fantasy as a fantasy. Someone like um, Douglas Fairburn, a Scottish um, psychoanalyst, came much later. Um, placed rather than pleasure as the driving principle, placed contact as the driving principle. This is what the infant wants, contact. Um, uh, someone like uh, Kohut, uh, um, in his sort of uh, what's called ego psychology that he developed, or um, places actually its self-coherence, so that the, the primary, the fundamental drive or impetus in in the psyche for a human being is towards constructing uh, a coherent and stable sense of self, or ego. Um, so very different ideas with different um, psychologies, different psychological paradigms of what is fundamental, what's the fundamental drive. So you can hear in that actually, in, in the closest, at least the closest sounding, it would be the Fairburn of just of those three examples, there are many others of course, but just to give those three as examples, the closest sounding to what we're talking about would be Fairburn in the contact. Like that's that the drive for contact, the impetus for for human contact is what drives um, the the psychic growth, the developmental psych, uh, the, the the development of the human being in that psychology. Contact you'll recognise from um, <coughs> uh, our definition of eros, wanting more contact, more connection, more uh, intimacy, touch, penetration, opening of the beloved other. Um, it's just that for Fairburn, that contact is more limited in what it means. It's it's uh, construed uh, in what we call more more of a flatly human way. Um, in our uh, in w- it's possible. Then I'm, my point is, it's possible uh, to construct a whole developmental psychology and also a psychology of pathology that's uh, based on the whole. Uh, based on eros and soul making, as we are defining those terms as the primary um, uh, developmental impetus, and then see what comes out of that. That might be really interesting to do. 
And in what ways can that, for instance, we talked about the soul-making dynamic getting out of balance with the eros, psyche, logos, or with self, other world, or whatever. And what kind of pathology, what kind of developmental difficulty or arrest or imbalance would that give rise to? You understand? I'm not going to go into this. I'm just pointing out something for the sake of a larger point. So, if we talk about... Um, developmental psychology, that whole paradigm, or, or just um, the psychopathology, um, or those two paradigms, then we can regard um, a developmental psychology that focuses on causes in the material past and just goes back, back, back as much as it can to the sperm and maybe even to past life and whatever, um, as one possible uh, way of looking, way of conceiving among other options. Can, can we regard it as one, um, one possible angle of direction, um, way of looking, way of conceiving, conceptual framing, among other options? So often it seems to me, at least nowadays in the circles I move in, uh, it may be very different in other, in other cultures, um, but so often it seems to shrink to that, though. It's not one among other options, it just becomes a kind of um, uh, mono-narrative, or mono conception. There's only I only have one pair of glasses, and and at a certain point I, I forget that they're even glasses. As I said, sometimes sometimes um, that can become too narrow. That kind of lens can become too narrow. We might miss then um, the political, social, cultural, environmental causes of dukkha, psychological distress, developmental. Uh, bending out of shape, uh, and, and also physical, you know, and it's quite, um, I think way, way before I got cancer, I pointed out in a, in a talk, you know, just uh, how I felt it was really dangerous for people, um, often pe- oftentimes people who don't have cancer to, to uh, or some disease that modern Western medicine has a hard time curing, um, oftentimes people jump in there and say, you you have this disease, you have this cancer, because you haven't dealt with some emotion uh, from the past, you haven't processed it, etc. And it's a, a, a kind of gross uh, assumption or a heavy, uh, you know, accusation to, to bring in. And, and in a way, it's uh, really a, a step too far of this narrowing, or as an example of a step too far of this kind of narrowing down of the causes of dukkha. So we, we neglect to see, well, you know, there's a, a pretty uh, uh, mind-boggling uh, uh, cocktail of pesticides in our environment. Our air is polluted, our water, our food... And we forget that because we've somehow narrowed it down to this um, a certain range of causes in the past that actually focus more on the individual and the individual story, wrapped up into that, you know, con- constructed, if you like, by the whole construct of the modern, uh, modern, if you like, Western uh, uh, construct of self. 
and also sometimes sometimes there's a narrowing and, and, and uh, much more often a, a narrowing um, uh, regarding the notion of um, temporal causality being in the past the past and uh, as as causal of, of present and uh, origins being in the past so what if there are just different options uh, available to us in terms of conceptual frameworks how does it feel when I say that when I suggest that it could even be possible you know, um, one of the things I'm really quite interested in is the philosophy of science. And in science, um, you can have, and you, in fact, you often do have in 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 different points in history. Um, and right now, uh, we have um, different theories uh, that have equal explanatory power and equal predictive power. Um, and there have been times in history, even when um, you know, two or even three or four theories. Uh, explain the same um, uh, physical phenomena, um, but from very in very different ways, and predict the same things, uh, but again for very different reasons. Then, in 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 the um, in the realm of science, in the world of science, what tends to happen then? Th- this situation exists, and it exists regularly um, in the history of science. Then um, scientists seek to move towards a consensus where they decide we we now favour this theory. This favour edges it. This theory uh, ed- edges uh, it over over that one at some points. Either because um, we find uh, different. Uh, predictions, and we do experiments, and we realize that this one predicts what happens better. Um, or for other reasons, I'm not going to go into this now. It's actually quite interesting. Um, there's also, if we talk about, uh, you know, conceptual frameworks or theories and truth, there's also, uh, again, I think, very interesting uh, debate um, that's been going on for decades around what actually is the status, or what's the link, what's the connection between a theory, a scientific theory, and reality. Um, and, uh, and we might kind of introduce that kind of thinking here as well, you know, this or that kind of questioning. So there is... Um, Forget me if I get the forgive me if I get the name not quite right, but um, there's something called... Um, correspondence notions of truth means that one believes that this theory or the elements of this theory correspond to actual elements of reality. Um, And that's what you're aiming for when you construct a theory and that's what you're um, achieving when you achieve a theory that works or you're, you're hoping for that. Um, so the theory is actually just a representation, uh, a kind of one-to-one representation of it corresponds. There's a co- correspondence of of uh, the elements of the theory and the elements of reality. And there's a different kind of notion of truth that um, philosophers talk about, and that's called a coherence notion of truth, or coherence emphasis, or something. I can't remember, but. Um, and what that means is that it's not so much that the theory, the elements of the theory correspond with elements of fact or um, or uh, physical reality. Actually, what you what 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 
what we what we've got when we say this is a truth or this is a theory that works is is that the elements of the theory um, fit together in a coherent way, but more than that, they fit together in uh, with other theories that we have in so that they form they fit well with our sort of um, and in a coherent way with our if you like family or set of theories and conceptual frameworks for looking at the world and interpreting existence. Um, so that, that to me is quite interesting and what if we reflect in those kind of ways, so some of you have more, more of a bent to, to, to think about these things conceptually and I think actually it's, for me it's part of the whole soul making dynamic at some point to actually ponder these things and and kind of exercise one's muscles there, um, it actually is soul making. But if we bring in these concepts or these different notions of truth in relation to the soul making paradigm and how that may or may not um, affect our uh, thinking and and reflection and use or movement between um, all these different psychological theories and theories of human development and psychological development and theories of psychopathology, etc., and theories of why Dukkha arises now and all that. And some scientists, um, so for instance Einstein, uh, um, um, actually pointed out that you never really know if tr- if it's truth that's being revealed by a theory. And again, in in also in the um, in a different way, uh, well, well, uh, Einstein's point was it, being a scientist is a bit like being a watch, uh, uh, um, uh, having a, a, a watch, you know, an old style watch, and um, and you're kind of uh, you 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 look at the face of it, and you look at the the hands and the and 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 the rest of it, and and you can kind of hear it ticking and and all that, and and you're really kind of guessing or constructing theories for how it, how it actually, what's actually going on inside, but you, you never really get to see what's going on inside to, to, to um, finally corroborate your theory. Um, and he said, Science is always like that. We might get to look kind of, so to speak, it might feel like, oh, we've got more inside because now we've got an electron microscope and this and that. But actually there's always a way, there's always a level at which you can't, you can't actually see. So there's, there's, a, there's a sense that we never really know whether a theory corresponds to reality. In a very different way, you know, quantum mechanics and the whole, what's called the Copenhagen interpretation um, is saying that our physical theories are not really about what is there, they're about what arises in experiments. What happens on the, the needles and dials and readouts in the laboratory. And there are really theories about that. Um, uh, I think also Richard Feynman, who, who won a Nobel Prize for his uh, quantum electrodynamic theory, um, also says something similar, I think, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. But I was trying to find it before this talk, but I couldn't. I couldn't actually find it. But I think I remember him saying something similar, and just pointing out how interesting it is that you can have really quite different theories that have similar explanatory power and similar predictive power. Um, philosophers are even uh, a lot of contemporary philosophers are even more keen on this I- idea of um, uh, opening up 
or questioning the whole relationship between um, theory or concept and uh, fact or even perception and, and so-called reality. And, and there's a long history of that in Western philosophy with um, Hume and Kant and Nietzsche and uh, even more so and um, later. But what we have here in, 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 in all this is, is the fact that different conceptual frameworks um, explain what we witness, explain what we observe in the human being, in our lives, in our experience. Different conceptual frameworks explain that differently. And they, they uh, open up different directions, or they lead us in different directions. Maybe that's a better way of, of, of saying it. They point us and prompt us in different directions. Different conceptual frameworks explain what we observe di- very differently, uh, or re- somewhat differently, uh, and they also prompt us in different and direct us in, in different directions. What I want to say, what I want to suggest and, and even hope for is, I, I wonder if, um, in partly helped by, in realizing that the thorough and deep and radical emptiness of all things, and, and going into that a lot, is possible to realize there is no ultimate truth of things. There is no um, uh, kind of perspective on reality where one can say, this is how this thing is. Um, and that kind of extends from there. One realizes that and extends from there, and uh, that understanding goes deep, and one realizes it extends also to conceptual frameworks. doesn't mean to say they're all equal. We'll come back to this in, uh, hopefully, the final talk of this series. Um, but one senses that we're not really... There is no possibility of arriving at some ultimate truth in that sense. And one begins to sense through these kinds of practices, through through the emptiness practice, but also through the soul-making practice, one really senses one's participation, as I've, I've emphasized uh, a few times, one's participation in perception. One's participation through conception in, in what arises. And also, even deeper than that, one's participation in the, in the truth, or in what reality is and all of that. And maybe it's possible through that, maybe maybe possible, maybe already accessible to you through some other facility or natural inclination, it's possible that um, we can open up for ourselves this, this uh, flexibility um, of conceptual frameworks. That we are actually free to move between different conceptual frameworks, and we're and we're adept enough in different conceptual frameworks. We're not relating to any of them as this is the real one. That's not the real one. This one is true. That's not true. This is the final um, explanation of things, of what we see. This is the final explanation of uh, human psychological development. This is the final explanation of human suffering or pathology or uh, difficulty or whatever. But we can have um, conceptually and practically this this flexibility. Uh, It's really available to us. Each of them we recognize um, has a different emphasis, a different way in, a different angle. 
it perhaps we could say opens certain doors and directions um, more and perhaps others less um, and delivers certain um, fruits more and others less than, than, than an alternative one. But we can, um, at times at least, entertain a conceptual framework that, um, because, because of, that is a conceptual framework that stimulates and supports an open soul-making. It's not so much about truth and this you know, being the final reality. It's, it's a conceptual framework that works in a way to, as I said, stimulate, um, support, nourish and open uh, soul-making for us. And that would be one of one conceptual framework among others in the ways that we relate to Dukkha, in the ways that we relate to our uh, ideas about human development and what it is to develop uh, well and how that can kind of be impeded or contorted or whatever. It's one among one paradigm among others, one conceptual framework we can entertain, we can adopt, move in and out of. And then wrapped up in that idea is is a kind of meta-conceptual framework of, of flexibility among conceptual frameworks. So there's a kind of higher level idea that um, that it's it's actually valid and valuable um, and helpful and really legitimate to move between different conceptual frameworks, whole different paradigms about psychology and development and pathology and suffering and uh, whatever. A meta-conceptual framework. And, and for me, that meta-conceptual framework is also a framework that um, stimulates, supports, nourishes and open soul-making. Uh, to me, that's actually part of the soul-making paradigm, the larger soul-making paradigm, that there's this flexibility of uh, uh, between conceptual frameworks. And that idea has its place uh, in, in soul-making. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.